welcome to Conversations with Q. I'm Lucia, Q's Marketing Director, and every week I have a chat with a marketer or entrepreneur from the tech space to get to the bottom of a bunch of things that are probably fascinating you, inspiring you, or downright puzzling you right now. Think how to make decisions about your career, what it actually takes to build a successful startup, marketing tactics you should and shouldn't bother with, the dark side of hustle culture, equality in the tech industry, and more. One of the main reasons I started this podcast was because I love listening to podcasts, specifically interviews. There's something special about listening to a real-life conversation between two people, which for me has a greater impact than, say, reading a blog post. It has that fly-on-the-wall dynamic, so that I feel like I'm accessing knowledge that's more important because it's more exclusive. Louis Grenier's Everyone Hates Marketers podcast always gives me the sense that I've unlocked some kind of secret door into the minds of top-level marketers. Louis, who also heads up content at Hotjar, has a unique interviewing style that really cuts to the chase, meaning his content always delivers the goods. Honestly, I think you're probably better off listening to the entire back catalogue of Everyone Hates Marketers than going to business school. So I was incredibly excited when Louis agreed to let me flip the roles and interview him as a guest on Q's podcast. I've still got a long way to go before I can match Louis's skill, but I hope you come away from this episode feeling like, in Louis's own words, you've discovered things that you didn't know you didn't know. I know I did. We start off by hearing about Louis's transition from engineering to marketing, then how his podcast rescued him from burnout after his first failed business, before moving on to the best marketing advice he's learned from his podcast guests, and finally, musing on the relationship between remote working and productivity. Great, so I'd just like to start by um, talking about your career, um, because I noticed that you actually studied mechanical engineering at university, but you didn't pursue a career in this, um, instead choosing marketing. So... When did you realise that engineering wasn't for you and what actually got you interested in marketing? Yeah, I'm glad you stuffed my profile because uh, this is Always. a fun fact about my, uh, uh, my, my, my small career so far. It's the fact <laughs> that, yes, originally I wanted to build uh, wind turbines, right, in high school. Oh, okay. And that was kind of the objective I had in my head. I don't really know why. I think my mom always has been a very... Uh, ecology-centric person, should I say, and I just got interested in that, and I just zeroed in it. And I was good in high school. I was good at physics and math and stuff, and I used to read all of those science uh, science magazines when I was younger. And so I had a, a, a big interest in science from the start, so it, it seemed like a good fit. And when I was looking after high school at the type of stuff I should be doing, I zeroed in into trying to find... Uh, engineering schools that would allow me to learn more about wind turbines. That's really as far as I went when it comes to thinking about it. Okay. So it was it one of those things where, you know, you're younger and you kind of get this idea in your head and a very specific dream and then you kind of realise that maybe that's not for you or was it just the, the topics that didn't interest you as much or did you just find maybe you didn't have the skills for it? 
So I guess it's the intersection between, uh, as you said, uh, what I had in my head and the reality and the intersection yeah. of the two was almost non-existent. So I went to mm -hmm. this school of engineering. I was quite young and immature. I was 17 at the time. I left my house where I was living with my parents uh, to live on my own. And I realized very quickly that the things I was about to learn were not the things I wanted to learn. I really wanted to learn more about yeah, winter but in particular, and I ended up learning about engines and cars and all of the stuff that I really didn't care about much. Yeah. So quite quickly, I understood that I'm gonna. I, I, I was struggling. I was about to struggle, uh, but I stayed in this school for three years, two years in France, and then I, I did one year abroad in in the US, in Kansas, and that's on the third year that I really, really had the epiphany of I really need to to get out of here and I need to do something different. Okay, so, I mean, you said you were always interested in physics and maths at school, but, you know, with marketing, it's kind of, it can be a very technical discipline, and obviously you do work in tech, but it's a very creative thing, that's how I always see it. So, would you say you're more of a creative person, or a tech person, or is it a kind of blend of the two? Well, I guess that's going to be the first uh, the first point where I disagree with you, I guess. Uh, on my side, I, I really don't see marketing to be very creative at all. Um, okay. I think it's really based on, as soon as you understand people very well, understand what they like, what they don't, why they take decisions, then marketing becomes very easy. And then, yes, you can be creative in certain the images you create or videos or ideas you have. But at the end of the day, the principles behind marketing are very scientific. Hmm. Um, and this is why I always liked about it. So, a bit of a, a bit of a background about marketing versus mechanical engineering. Another passion of mine that I didn't realize I had until until I had a choice to leave this school of engineering to do something else was the fact that, that I always like to understand people, and I, I took it for granted. But part of the scientific background I had was also the psychology side of things that I loved from a young age. And so one of the books I read. Uh, when I went to visit my elder brother in Paris, uh, in the middle of this school of engineering, was um, the basically the French version of Cialdini, the book uh, about persuasion, okay. and that really, really gave me this wow moment or aha moment when it comes to oh my god, this is this is what I want to learn about more, like you know, understanding people, understanding biases, understanding how to convince people. Um, how to understand them and all of that. So that's really triggered in my mind this, the fact that, okay, this is something I like. And the second thing I was doing a lot in high school as well is I used to create forums uh, on internet for my friends and I to, to talk about because at the, at the time there was no Facebook or anything like this. So I used to hack a lot of stuff around uh, to create forums and things. And I, so I had a very strong interest in, in digital marketing uh, or, or web development without really having thought about it. Um, but then when I was in Kansas, I remember sitting in, uh, in the cafeteria. Uh, I was depressed at the time. I was really, really anxious about my life and the fact that I didn't want to do mechanical engineering uh, anymore. I really connected the two together for the first time then. Mm. Uh, the psychology aspect, as well as the, the web dev, digital marketing uh, aspect of it. So to go back to the first question and what you said, I, I don't think creativity has a lot to do with marketing, uh, maybe at the end of it, but at the start, I, I believe it's very much so scientific. Sure. No, that makes sense. I think what I'm getting at is maybe that creativity is the secondary part, So, but you're saying at the core it's more analytical. 
Yes, I mean, there are systems that you use, yeah. right? There are rules that you use, there are principles that you use, and people are not rational, they are very irrational, but there are ways to understand this irrationality in a scientific manner. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very much analytical when it comes to testing stuff and see what works, because you can be as creative as you want in a studio, unless you ship that and show that in front of, of people, you're not going to know whether it works or not. So this is kind of the the issue I have with this, the thinking that, you know, marketers are, are creatives um, and that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a hit and miss, you're creative and therefore you can't really measure anything or you, you don't really know, you don't really have a system in place. I don't think that's true. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think obviously we're seeing that increasingly now that marketing has become so reliant on, you know, digital stuff and tech. Um, you can't just kind of fire off an idea and hope for the best. No, uh, but I would say, though, that good marketers have always done this, right? So if you yeah. read books like from Ogilvy and all of those direct marketers and those direct copywriters, they've understood these principles like 60, 70, 80 years ago for some of them, and there's nothing new there yet. Yeah, sure. Um, so that's really interesting, actually, hearing your perspective. Um, and so... I know that you, after university, then you went um, and worked for a couple of companies and a mobile marketing startup, but you also founded two of your own businesses. So the first was called Transparent Nation and then a marketing consultancy, Slices. So could you tell us a little bit more about these two ventures, um, kind of what they were and what happened with them? Right, so when I, I started marketing, in Dublin. So I came for an internship after I did one year of business school. After I left mechanical engineering, I did one year of business school in my hometown. And then I did an internship abroad in Dublin. Uh, and I basically stayed in the company that hired me as an intern for three years. Okay. Um, I learned marketing on the side and then finally joined a, a company doing marketing. So that was a mobile marketing startup. I mm -hmm. stayed with them for two or three years. And then I left to create my business. So Transplant Nation was a side project of this business. So the main business was Slices Consulting. Um, and it was basically helping companies to convert more of their visitors into customers. So basic conversion rate optimization stuff. I didn't know much about it. I had absolutely no clue about it from the start. I learned everything from bigger companies that were doing it much better than I was. I did manage to make some money. I even hired some people. We were remote at the highest. We were four people. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot from it, but in hindsight, it's just insane that I started a company after, after just three years of experience in marketing. Uh, that showed that I really thought I was, uh, I knew way more than I thought, uh, than I actually did. Uh, so I made all the mistakes you could make building okay. businesses. Uh, I made it then. Um, and I guess I can, I can expand on all of those mistakes, but to, to finish the, the small story, I ended up burning out after two years or so, uh, like under massive pressure from like getting money from clients, delivering good work. And I just couldn't do it anymore psychologically, mm. uh, to the point where I just, yeah, I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't face the computer, couldn't open my emails. I couldn't do any of it. Um, but luckily, I did something in the meantime that led me to where I am today. And I guess we can talk about that later. Yeah, so I was going to ask you, what, um, how did you bounce back from that? Because I think that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs go through um, is a first failed business. It's rare that that succeeds, right? Um, and yeah, so how did you bounce back from that? And what advice would you give your younger self should you have stayed in, in full-time employment longer? 
Right. So the the first thing that happened was um, I I was really interested in bootstrapping. So the you know building businesses without uh, outside money. Yeah. Um, and I decided to organize few events, two events, two small events in Dublin to an interview people who were doing that kind of stuff, right? So there were boost, uh, famous bootstrappers or actually successful bootstrappers in Dublin who, who managed to grow business without uh, outside funding. So I organized two of those events in the Chamber of Commerce of Dublin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I interviewed two, uh, two companies, I mean, CEOs of two companies, and um, I realized that I really enjoy interviewing them. And I've also realized that people in the audience seem to really enjoy the interview and the question I asked. Mm-hmm. Um, and based on that, I asked myself, maybe there's something you could do more without necessarily doing an event, but just interviewing people online and see what what comes out of it. So that was in the that was towards the end of my business. I wasn't fully burned out, but I was close to it. And I that kind of was my escape from the day to day business. So I just started contacting marketers in particular, and also a bit of CEOs and founders of companies of bootstrap companies. And I started just to interview them on Skype, just very curious about what they do, very curious about the business, very curious about marketing. Mm. And it's only after a few of those interviews that I realized maybe I need to double down on those marketers because I was really, I mean, obviously I'm a marketer, I'm really into it. Uh, so I, I decided to only start uh, interviewing marketers and then I've started to, to think hard about a concept around those interviews because I was just interviewing them for the sake of it. And this is when I thought hard about the things that used to piss me off about marketing that still do annoy me about marketing and to fight against it. So I took a contrarian approach, which was, you know, how can we talk about marketing uh, from the standpoint that principles behind them will never change? How can we talk about marketing from a very practical manner instead of talking about what we discussed before? Like it's all about creativity and therefore like it's, it's a black box and you can't access it. How can we talk about marketing from a honest and ethical standpoint? Mm. Those are all the things that used to annoy me in marketing. So I started to think about it this way. And so what happened was this side project started to be the only thing that I used to enjoy. And when I interviewed one of my guests, which is the CEO of, of Hotjar, David Darmanin, mm. that's when that enabled me, this contact enabled me to, to switch and decide to, to quit my business so I could join another company that was uh, worth it of my time. Amazing. So how did you, when you first started interviewing those people, how did you secure those interviews? Were they people that you already knew in your network or did you have to do quite a significant amount of outreach? I reached out to them cold, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, sent them an email and just hoped for the best. I guess at the start of my consulting business, I used to do a lot of cold outreach, trying to reach out to people that I admire or people I'd like to work with. So. I learned how to guess their email addresses and I learned how to make sure that, you know, when you send an email, it gets open and, and they reply to you. Yeah. And I've used that for the, for the guests. To be honest, it wasn't that difficult. People love to talk about themselves. You know, I'm <laughs> a good example of that. You invited me. I'm more than happy to talk about myself for 45 minutes. <laughs> um, uh, so, and so that it wasn't difficult to get, to get people on board, to be honest, I guess. 
the other reason why I felt it wasn't that difficult is because of the concept uh, mm. of everyone hates marketers that was quite strong, quite contrarian. And I think people connected with the idea kind of um, gravitated towards it uh, easily. So yeah, I sent, I used to send very snappy email, one line, one line emails uh, and hope for the best. Yeah, I think just kind of touching what you've said about the concept of the podcast there being contrarian. Um, that's something I find whenever I read your blog posts or listen to your podcast episodes. It's always quite a refreshing experience. And what you say actually makes perfect sense and you're highly logical in your approach to marketing. But what makes it refreshing is that it contradicts most of the advice I see elsewhere, which is, you know, to be on all of the social media channels, to reach as many people as possible, keep up with the latest trends. Um, and in the digital age, you know, we suffer from FOMO. So let's say your competitor starts uploading videos on IGTV, you might feel pressure to do the same in your business. So I'd love to know a bit more about your decision-making processes um, when it comes to marketing. So both in your role at Hotjar and your own projects. So how do you know when to try something and when to leave it be? My approach is not really mine. Uh, I guess it's really more all of the people I've interviewed and all the authors I've read about throughout the years. Um, so what I'm going to tell you is not really based on, on my experiences. It's, it's, it's more what I've learned from others and I just repeat uh, uh, and I digested it and to make it my own a bit. But I want to give credit to all the people that have helped putting that into my head. So, And I'm going to try to mention a few. It's funny, because when I interview all of those marketers, those famous marketers, those very experienced marketers, those successful marketers, there is one thing that they all have in common when you ask them, you know, how do you start doing marketing the right way anyway? Do you know what that is? Tell me. It's understanding customers, understanding mm. people. They all start with that. Like, there's not one who I interviewed, who, who didn't start with, with this principle. And I, I really believe this is the core of marketing. This is the core of, of anything really that relates to marketing. So this is the first thing of the approach, whether you decide to test something or not, or to go with it or not. You must have a deep understanding of your customers, of your ideal customers, who you serve. And you also therefore must have a deep understanding of who you should not serve, right? Okay. Um, and I think this is the biggest mistake marketers do. I used to do that a lot. It takes some guts to do it. It takes it takes some some grit to do it. But you're 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 going to be glad you, you you did it. So people like Seth Godin mentioned it on my podcast. Uh, and as I said, most of the guests I've interviewed mention it uh, as the first step. So it's really start with understanding them and it start with interviewing people, talking to them. It starts with sending surveys, just basic qualitative research to really, truly really understand who they are, how they make their decisions, what they care about, what challenges they're trying to solve, what alternatives they're trying to look at instead of uh, your product or service. I mean, if you don't have that basics, then there's no point doing anything else. Sure. No, that chimes with what everyone I've interviewed on this podcast has said as well. So... Definitely. Building genuine relationships, I think, is so important to marketing, but people do overlook it, which is crazy because we have all of these tools at our disposal now that make it so much easier to get to know your customers. I guess 
you do and you do not uh, all of those tools you can talk about like facebook insights and i i don't know there might be other tools you're thinking about that enable you to understand them the social media and all they are great don't get me wrong but i've yet to find a tool that helps you to to truly understand people better than just talking to them face to face or yeah. sending them a survey so that's a deep that's an idea that david Darmanin, the ceo of, uh, of hotjar actually talked about the on the podcast last year which I really connected with, which is the best tools that you have available to you are your ears, your mouth, your mind, you know, just talking to people, mm. right? And so I don't want to come across as, you know, understanding customer is difficult, you need to have the right tools. You do not. Literally, you, have, you need no money to do that. You need no tools. You only need you talking to someone else, taking notes. And guaranteed when you talk to five customers or five potential customers your understanding of the market is gonna really improve and i struggled to find any other tools that enable you to do that that well okay good advice so using this approach in your marketing um what could you provide an example of when you've done that and it's really really paid off so what's the most successful marketing campaign or strategy you've ever implemented or what are you most proud of I guess while we're on the topic of the podcast, I think I can I can talk about it from this perspective, from a marketing strategy standpoint, because I haven't really talked about this that much from a marketing strategy uh, standpoint. Mm-hmm. So I guess this is this could be an example. When I when I started the podcast, it it came from a gut feeling that I had to do it. That it was my opinion. That I really felt strongly that all of those people I interviewed so far, like five or six. We're all saying something that I agreed with. And for the first time, I, I had other people mentioning things that I agreed with, or even things that I didn't know I didn't know. Yeah. And I had the confirmation that I wasn't the only one thinking this way. So it came from within, right? It didn't mm-hmm. come from interviewing customers or potential listeners to understand what were their pain points, not at this stage. So I had some sort of a creativity side of things, in a sense. Uh, but I also understood that to start a podcast that would actually take a stand, I mean, make a difference, uh, or actually try to set set apart from the other podcasts, I took the decision to to have a very, very contrarian standpoint, something very strong, because I knew that when you start with why, when you start with what, why you're doing what you're doing, you automatically attract people that will think this way, and you automatically tell the ones who don't think this way to not listen or to even hate you or to dislike you, right? So I made this conscious approach to do that. I could have done yet another marketing podcast. I, I picked a contrarian standpoint on purpose, right? And that's yeah. something I used to, I'm very uh, much familiar with. I like doing this. This is something that I'm willing to take uh, uh, risk from. Um, so that's, that was definitely from within. That wasn't coming from anywhere else, just my own experience in marketing in the last few years, the things I used to really be pissed off about and very angry about. Mm. Um, But then, as I said, the first five or six interviews I did with experts, I realized that they thought the same way, and yet no no one else was talking about it in the space. So I I saw an opportunity there. But I guess the best best thing I've done, as soon as the podcast launched after a few episodes, I talked to around 35, 40 listeners, Mm -hmm. and I asked them for their feedback about the podcast format, for example. So they told me straight away, I very much enjoy your interview style when it comes to the, the actions and how you ask practical questions and how you interrupt the guest to, to get more details. 
Uh, however, it, it takes too long to get into that piece. It takes 25 minutes sometimes. So mm -hmm. why everyone almost told me that. So instead of starting with a guest talking about a problem and the solution, I flipped it around to talk about at the start of the episode to start with the problem straight away, followed by a solution that would take most of the podcast. And at the end, we will talk with the guest. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. The other thing is I discovered, uh, I've asked them about the type of guests they like to have on board, the type of people they admired. I've also asked them where they hang out online um, and all of that. So I really, I felt I created the podcast with the listeners, with the score people who really believe in the same thing I believed in. Mm -hmm. And so far, after a year and a half, the podcast still grows organically on its own. I don't do any promotion apart from reaching out to the guest. And it grows because I believe I've listened to the feedback very early on from the, the, the core people, the really the people I really want to listen to. And I'm pretty much ignoring everyone else. I, I don't really care if, if you give me feedback, if I don't feel like you agree with my standpoint, or if you agree with the vision. Uh, and finally, the last piece was the, the title itself is not mine. I didn't come up with everyone hates marketers. I actually asked on the Slack communities uh, on Slack communities, uh, whether they had idea based on the topic or the angle I wanted to go after, and someone out of the blue oh, suggested okay. this. Um, I think that's something I would recommend everyone when it comes to the marketing uh, marketing strategy. It's that simple. It's really start with people that you want, the, 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 your tribe, as Seth Godin would say, mm. and start from within, start from them. Then the rest follows. They give you feedback, you listen, you implement it, and, and you, you learn where they hang out online so you can promote your podcast to where they are or your stuff to where they are. You learn what other things they listen to. I mean, it just gets easier and easier once you understand your customers. Yeah, Slack communities can be such a valuable tool, actually, for all sorts of things. Um, so I guess with Everyone Hates Martyrs, although you kind of didn't consciously set out to start a podcast and, you know, make a really successful podcast you kind of were your own customer initially, you know, you were solving a problem that you encountered as a marketer. Yes, that's yeah. exactly what happened. Um, but I didn't, I didn't think about it this way. I, I, I genuinely, I genuinely wanted to hear from others to see whether I was the only one thinking this way. Yeah. Was like, was I insane? Was okay. I the only one or actually others? Thought yeah. this way, and what turns out is yes, a few people that I've interviewed thought the same way, but most of the listeners haven't, because mm. they didn't know they didn't know in a sense. So they they got angry about the same thing, but they didn't think there was something else than just the traditional nonsense that you can hear about marketing, as you mentioned. Oh, you need to be on social media. Oh, you need to talk to everyone. Um, don't listen to feedback. Don't listen to your customers. They don't know what they want. All of those nonsense that you mm. can hear every day. Yeah. So I find it really interesting that you don't do a lot of work promoting your podcast because we often hear things in content marketing about like the 80-20 rule or whatever type of rule it is um, that you should spend more time promoting your content than creating it. So do you disagree with that across all cases or is this just your own podcast? It's a, it's a social experiment, to be honest, uh, in a sense that I do not have much more time than what I have right now to spend on the podcast. And so therefore, because I have a full-time job at, at Hotjar, uh, I, can't, I can't spend five hours a week promoting it. Um, 
Now, I do promotion, but I do very little. The only way that I promote, as I said, is I spend time reaching out to the guests, making sure that they share it. That's part of the promotion. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I do is I publish episodes on the website with the transcript, and that gets picked up by Google. And so, organically speaking, in the long term, that gets also some traction. And I do get new listeners from, from Google quite often. And then finally, uh, on, I also have the podcast on, um, on YouTube, Spotify, and other platforms where people can find stuff. And I know that people find uh, some of the episodes through keyword research, like Mark Ritson was a guest. A lot of people search for that or send God in. So it's not true that I don't do promotion itself, but I think I do very little. Uh, for the podcast itself as a social experiment to see if it keeps growing and so far it does I guess the reason why I do that is I think and the, the, the topic is so strong and I feel that the content is, is good thanks to the guest that I don't I don't feel the need to promote too much I want to grow uh, slowly but surely and I want to attract the right type of listeners right so I'm not going to try to hack my way into reaching 100,000 people if they are the wrong ones. I prefer to have 2,000 listeners that are very, very in tune with what I say and agree with me rather than 10,000 who don't. Now, in terms of in general, it's difficult to give advice for everyone. Like, should you create, uh, spend more time creating than promoting? Definitely when it comes to the landscape and what's happening in marketing and everywhere else, it, it is getting more difficult to be noticed, but it's also, it, it is getting easier to produce things that, that matter to people. I would focus first with making sure that you solve people's problem, you help them out in the best way possible and get their feedback mm. before thinking too much of promotion, because promoting a, promoting a bad piece is, is, is really, uh, really unhelpful. Um, but this is kind of an experiment you can do with anything, really. If the content itself is good, it should grow on its own because yeah. people will, will want help but, but share it, right? Yeah. They will. Uh, and Google will pick it up and, and all of that. Um, so I would recommend to start with that before making sure that your content is good before you promote it. Yeah, and sometimes you just need one influential person to share something if, if they really like it. And then that's a fantastic way to get your content out there and it I guess it's more of a kind of slow and steady wins the race approach thinking about yes. the long term because so, I don't know how many podcasts have started before or in the same time that I did hmm. uh, and I don't know how many stopped but exactly as you said the strategy for this personal podcast is slow and steady yeah I want to be it's a marathon not a sprint I want to hmm. be in still have this podcast in five years and so therefore, I do everything to make sure I don't burn out doing it. I do everything to make sure that I get the right listeners, that I get feedback. I focus on first principles, on things that will never change. And I really don't spend any time thinking of the new hacks on the block for the months of January 2019 or what platform I should be on next or all this kind of stuff. Okay. And I'm glad you mentioned that part of the reason you don't spend more time promoting it is that you simply don't have time and it's a side project because I wanted to ask you how you do manage having this side project, which is doing really well, with a full-time role at Hotjar. Um, do you, because you've experienced burnout in the past, do you now have a better kind of grasp on work-life balance, if that's a concept you subscribe to? 
Uh, yeah, I subscribe to the concept of having a, a healthy life. Mm -hmm. uh, work is part of life, right? So I don't, I'm not too sure of the term, but I agree with you. I guess to answer the question, I'm lucky enough to have a company that, you know, hired me because of the podcast, first of all. Yeah. And so they understand that I had this side project. They also understood when I joined Hotjar that they would, um, that they would support me, or at least they wouldn't prevent me from doing it. And so that's the first thing. Everyone agrees internally that it's a good thing for the, for the company as well. So that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's why I'm, I'm lucky to have them and to work with them. Uh, when it comes to the structure, I use a, a virtual assistant to help me. I wouldn't okay. be able to do what I'm doing now without a virtual assistant. So I actually invest some of my salary from Hotjar into the podcast every month, right? And I have someone who helps me with the, the audio. So every time I have an episode ready, so I would reach out to guests myself, right? When it comes to inviting them, yeah. I would obviously prepare the questions, interviews, and but after that, I basically don't do much. So my virtual assistant would clean up the audio, get the title, uh, send me a few title suggestions, publish uh, the uh, publish or schedule the episode on Libsyn, which is the podcasting service I use, and and then it gets uh, it gets shared everywhere reaching out to the guests to let them know the episode is live, uh, encouraging them to share if they haven't again, um, and making sure that the transcripts are done and published on the website. So I don't do any of that, right? Okay. And that what, that's what allows me to keep going uh, without burning out. And so I have recorded 100 episodes now. Wow, and that's congrats. only thanks to the fact that I outsource and only focus on what I do best yeah and I guess that means that you genuinely enjoy it as well because you kind of get to do the fun part without getting really bogged down by all of the more tedious tasks like kind of editing cleaning up audio absolutely and I think this is an advice in for everyone which is about focus on tasks that energize you mm. and focus on tasks that on uh, focus on your strengths double down on your strengths instead of trying to to um to fix your weaknesses um, and that's what I've consciously done. I'm, I know I'm good at interviewing people. I know I'm good at reaching out to guests. I know I'm not good at cleaning audio or doing admin stuff. That's not my thing. <laughs> yeah. So I just made peace with that and, uh, and, and chose to outsource, even though it means more money spent every month um, with someone else. Because of the slow and steady strategy, I, that actually allows me to know that this podcast will be still live and kicking in a year, two years, three years, five years. Yeah, cool, that's good advice. So I don't know, um, do you actually work remotely now with Hotjar or is there... I do, space? yes. Okay, yeah, because I, I think I read a blog post um, a while ago where you were talking about your company Slices and how that was a remote team. So I'd kind of love to get your perspective on remote work and how it works for you personally. And do you see it as something that will kind of become the future of work in the tech industry and beyond? Well, it is there already. It's not the future. It's very much a presence. Um, and I guess it's all about giving your team, your employees, the freedom to do to work to work where they where they want to and to do what they want to when they want to to trust them enough to do that because in return this trust will be transformed into higher productivity, happiness more time to spend on the company, less time to, to find another job and all of that. So yeah. it's, it's definitely not the future of work because it's the present of work, but definitely in the future, it's going to be 
more and more companies are, are understanding that giving freedom to employees is actually productive. Spoiler alert, yes, it is productive. Uh, so instead of having them in an office, having to come in and working from the same hours than everyone else and looking over their shoulder to make sure they do their work, uh, when you give them the freedom to, to work from where they want to and choose what they want to work on and pick their metrics and all of that, then yeah, it becomes much more productive. So uh, as for my personal way of handling remote, I work from Dublin most of the time. I also work from a co-working space most of the time because that's where I'm the most productive. But I can I work from France sometimes when I go see my parents. I work from abroad when uh, I visit the um, colleagues at Hoja. Mm -hmm. but some of my colleagues at Hoja work 100% remotely. They travel all the time, so they will be in different places all the time. I've tried that, that's really not for me. Uh, I don't feel very productive when I do that, um, but at least I have the choice and that's the biggest difference. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's, I mean, I work remotely obviously for Q, we've always been a completely remote team. So I've kind of had similar experiences to you where I've tried traveling and then, but I find that I am better, you know, if I'm just settled in one place and it's nice to have the option to go on holiday or stay with family. Um, but what I like is that in asking you that question, a lot of conversations around remote work, especially for people who haven't experienced it, they focus on the negatives like, oh, don't you get lonely or they don't really understand it. And I think what people fail to see is that in terms of productivity and just the kind of machinations of a company, it can really transform the way a business operates, right? Um, just having more freedom and giving that to your employees means that I think in my experience they can be more likely to take initiative um, and get more kind of stuck into projects. Yeah, I guess this is this is one of the things I hear a lot. People are very curious about, but how do you make sure that you do work? How do you make yeah. sure that your colleagues do some work then? Because aren't they just not slacking off all day? And this is the Obviously, one of the things that, as you said, people don't ex they haven't experienced it, so they don't know. But yeah. it's actually the, the other way around. It's um, I find I worked in offices before, and I've, I can see the difference in productivity. Mm. Um, you just when you are online, when you work for Hotjar, when it's your day, when you know you know you're working, you're working. It's it's a very different feeling, and I I don't remember all the studies done on this subject, but it's part of the psychology principles as well of people. Uh, the more you give people the choice of doing something, the more likely they are to do it and do it well. And mm -hmm. so this works with anything. It's like with kids, you know, if you, if you tell them, no, you don't do that, um, they are more likely to do that because they, they just want to be contrarian. Mm -hmm. But if you give them the choice and say, well, I, I, you know, I let you choose what you want to do. Uh, like you don't have to do it, but it would be great if you help me or whatnot. You are more chances to, to get some help. So it's just about understanding that people working for companies are like adults. And uh, if yeah. you trust them, they'll, they'll uh, respect you and they'll do good work. I could have talked to Louis for ages, but I know he has lots more important things to do. So I'm afraid that's it from him today. If you're not already following Louis's work, you should be. So here's where to find him. Uh, when it comes to plugging my stuff, I guess I talked about the podcast quite a lot. You can go to everyonehatesmarketers.com for that. 
when it comes to Hotjar, we have a blog that is quite uh, active right now about helping you to understand your users so you can improve their experience. And you can go to hotjar.com slash blog for that. If you want to reach out to me, if you have any questions, I'm more than happy to reply to you. I read all my emails. You can contact me at louis, that's L-O-U-I-S, at everyonehatesmarketers.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversations with Q. We'll be back next week with another very special guest. And in the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback. So please do rate, review and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.